You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. Well, this morning, an extra special welcome to those of you who may have never been in church before, who may never have bothered to tune in to a church service. Welcome. We especially want you to feel welcome if you are an outsider to the Christian faith. For me, I feel often like an outsider. You know, not in this sense of insecurity to go into a a group, or not because I feel inadequate, but generally because of who I am, I feel like an outsider. I mean, I'm a pastor. That presents kind of a natural barrier between me and normal people, where they want to hold you at a distance. Oh, you're a pastor. And a part of my experience of being a pastor is also that of being a Christian. And Christians sometimes are held at a distance. Oh, you're one of those. And the fact that I really care deeply about my faith, that I want to be as consistent as possible I think has put me at the place of an outsider. And I've been with this my whole life. Growing up a preacher's kid has put me into that role uh, even from a very young age. And you know, some of this distance between a Christian and an outsider is justified. There are a lot of negative experiences that people have with Christians. Let's just be honest. We're not always the best people to be around. And sometimes the way that we carry ourselves pushes people to the outside. In fact, I still, even though it's been out a long time, not quite 10 years, a fellow by the name of David Kinneman still captures my attention with his research work of a book that was published more at a popular level called Unchristian. And you're probably familiar with this, uh, whether you're an insider or an outsider to the Christian faith. He lists off the top six things that outsiders say about Christians. And I know that if I gave you a bit of time to write down on a piece of paper, you probably could come up with what those are. The first one, the top one, the number one thing is that those Christians are hypocrites. Right? You've heard that before. You've probably said that before. The number two thing is that they're just so focused on converting people. They just want to win converts. The number three thing is that they're anti-homosexual. The number four thing is that they're very sheltered. They're protected. They're removed. Number five thing is that they're way too political. And number six, which could easily be number one, they're far too judgmental. Now, you've probably heard these things. You've probably thought these things. You've probably experienced these things about Christians. I think it's pretty common and comfortable and okay to say that at times we all feel like outsiders. I don't know if it's some kind of hangover of emotional trauma for middle school where we still feel somehow like we're on the outside, but I think if we're honest, we all feel that way. And maybe it's uh, feeling inadequate because of certain training that we have or that we don't have enough money or have too much money, 
or maybe that we don't have the kind of education or the job that we want, we feel inadequate compared to other people. Even those people that are very comfortable in their own skin. Those folks that you think, well, there's no, they don't feel inadequate. They don't feel like outsiders. If they're honest, you might talk to them and they might be so tuned in to the perspectives of others that they're an outsider to themselves. They don't really know who they are because they're driven by how other people perceive them. So it's pretty common to feel like an outsider. And that's why I want to spend time in this brand new series, very much focused in on outsiders. And I want to do my best. I know I'm very much an insider to the Christian faith. I'm going to own that. But I'm going to do my best to focus in and take an outsider's view of Jesus. To be honest about it. To tell some stories about Jesus from the Gospel of Luke that help us see how outsiders treated Jesus. Were they drawn to him? Were they repelled by him? And even to begin to see how Jesus might be seen best through an objective outsider's view. How does that sound? Does that sound like something that might interest you? Here as we dive into Scripture, going outside to tell these stories and learning. Well, the question is, how do you begin something like that? How do you even start? Because as I thought about this, I really wanted to let an outsider tell me about Jesus. Not an insider. Not someone who was a disciple. Not one of those fishermen. But truly someone not on the inner circle. Someone maybe not even Jewish. Not religious at all. That might give us the best view. But that's kind of a tall order, right? I mean, we're, we're talking about a popular figure who lived 2,000 years ago. So can you even have an investigation like that to look into someone's lives where it's not going to be biased and it's not going to be slanted? I know it's pretty tough. I know it's difficult. So I was racking my brain trying to think of who might fit the bill. And I did think of this guy, Josephus. Josephus was a Jew and he was a Jewish historian. He was not a Christian. And a lot of times people will go to Josephus to figure out some things about first century life, what it was like, what things were happening, what historical events were going on. But I didn't even want to go there. I don't want to, I didn't want a Jew. I didn't want someone that's working on their, you know, PhD in uh, first century history. I wanted someone on the outside, someone with a different kind of view. You know, there's all these kinds of people. There's so many groupies of Jesus that are following closely on his sandals, almost stepping on his sandals because they're so close. Oh, Jesus, I'm sorry, I stepped on your sandal. Memorizing his sayings and his words. And I just wanted something different. And then it hit me. I thought of someone who is an outsider, who was not one of Jesus' first followers, who didn't fit the role of the stinky fisherman, who wasn't an early adopter of this new perspective of how one might view God through Jesus. I thought of this person who had a different kind of a job. He was in the medical field. He was a doctor. Now, whenever we hear doctor, we think, well, this is someone who teaches in a seminary, or maybe more appropriate, this is someone I go to because I'm sick. Well, a doctor in this time didn't make you a part of the elite. 
A doctor in the first century was part of the artisan class. In fact, this doctor was smart enough that he reached out and secured funding for his project because he wanted to gather up all the stories that were being told, all the stories that were written down about Jesus, and really and truly make an investigation into this, to put things in order, to make sense of what was going on. Now, I do have to tell you that I eventually this guy became a disciple, but he was not a disciple on the front end. In fact, he's an outsider among the Gospels. Okay, Gospels, good news, Gospel, think genre like comedy or novel. There are four of these things in the Bible, in what's called the New Testament or the second telling of the story. It's the second part of the story. Four of these things. And two of them are written by apostles. Okay, breaks, apostle. This is a sent one. This is a messenger. The apostles were people that Jesus hand-appointed. And there were at least 12 of them that Jesus selected. There were more than 12. But two of these gospels, these books, were written by apostles. Luke, or excuse me, John, an apostle, and Matthew. A third one was written by a guy that was really close to an apostle, a young man who followed Peter around and took notes on what he shared about Jesus' life. So those three are all insiders. But the outlier, the one we don't often talk about, is a guy by the name of Luke, Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke's only claim to fame is that he connected himself with another outsider, a guy that killed Christians, a guy that was a Jew, but he was so hostile to Christians that he wanted to see them killed. Luke spent time traveling with, with Paul, who eventually became an adopted apostle, and you can imagine probably kept at arm's length because he killed Christians. So we get this outsider's view. Now take a look. I know, it's weird. You probably hadn't thought about a book being an outsider book, but look at Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Here we find out what Luke's mission is and what his intentions are, and let's just see if they don't line up with our own. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. So there's Luke's task. He's got this benefactor in Theophilus who is paying for him to do this orderly account, and he's taken everything together, and he's explaining to us this story about who Jesus is. So I think Luke is our person. And I think that it's okay to pursue truth, which is what Luke is trying to do. You know, that's probably something I'm thinking about for another series, how to deal with truth today. Is it possible for us to be objective, to set aside our opinions, to delay some judgment, and really and truly listen to everyone. Listen to all sides and make the best possible assertion of the truth. Well, Luke thinks so. I think so. And I think it's worth walking along with him 
as our guide. Well, so Luke is this great outsider for us. If you're not familiar with Luke, he has lots of the Christmas stories in there. If you've ever seen Charlie Brown's Christmas show, Linus quotes the chapter of Luke almost verbatim, right? You get stories in Luke from outsiders. He doesn't start with Jesus. And in fact, today, we're not going to do anything with Jesus. We're going to get ready for Jesus. He tells these stories about Jesus when he was a child. He gives us background stories to some family people that are kind of on the fringes of Jesus' family. Some crazy characters in Jesus' family. All of these outsiders are talked about by Luke. We don't just hear about Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph. We know them. But we hear about Mary's distant relatives. Mary, who's related to Elizabeth. Don't know if she's a sister, maybe a cousin. Elizabeth and Zechariah are married, and they have a boy named John. Now, here's where I get excited, because we find out about Jesus' maybe cousin, maybe second cousin, John the Baptist. And his message is one that's pretty intent. This character is definitely an outsider. Bearded, speaking out in the desert, crazy, irreverent, ruffles feathers. Politicians hate him because he points out their ethical inconsistencies. He points out all the marriages that they've had. He points out their illicit affairs their corrupt business dealings, and he talks about it openly in public. They hated him. In fact, in verse 18 and 19 of chapter 3, we find out that Herod wanted to see him killed, and, they, and he threw him in prison. So that's the kind of guy that John the baptizer is. Well, what caught me and what captures me about John the baptizer is his background. He's a priest's kid. He's an insider to the temple. But he doesn't become a priest, at least not in the normal sense of the word. He had every right, he had it in his blood, but instead he grows his beard out and goes out from the temple, out into the desert. And that brings us to where our story is for today. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 7. John, the baptizer, said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, you snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones children of Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Did I say he was a fiery fella? He's a fiery fella. Now, I kind of want to take him by the side and say, look, this isn't going to work for outsiders. You don't just call people snakes. He doesn't even take the easy road and start attacking the politicians or the religious leaders like the Gospel of Matthew. No, he's talking to the people. The common people. You bunch of snakes, who scared you to slither off away from the fires that are coming? 
Now, I would want to tell John, tone it down. Outsiders don't need that kind of talk. That is not going to work. But it does work. They do like it. Whenever people call out inconsistencies, it's valued. I have to think that Luke really likes these outsiders because he's one. So he gives John the baptizer a much more prominent role. And he gives all these external people to Jesus a much more prominent role because it challenges the norms. It challenges what is comfortable. And basically, he's not wooing them at all. He's attacking them and saying, enough of this hypocrisy. Oh, wait a second. What was the first thing David Kinnaman said? Hypocrisy. That's what John the Baptist goes for. I think it connects with outsiders because outsiders don't like to see inconsistency. Instead, John the baptizer points to the power of God not to the priestly structure, not to the religious structure, not to the political powers. He points to God and calls people to turn to God. If you want to get ready to hear something about Jesus, then you have to point away from everything and anything that is not God. Now, enough of the hypocrisy, I think, is a message we can connect with, whether we're insiders or outsiders. We don't like it when people pretend to live a certain way and then their life is something totally different. It just doesn't fit for us. It's troubling to us. And I have to tell you, it's troubling for me. Right now, it's kind of an embarrassing time to be a Christian because Christians often attach themselves to a lot of things that are not God. Crazy theologies, embarrassing political things, all kinds of nuances, and it makes all Christians kind of look bad. I get embarrassed whenever I hear about one more minister who's fallen to a financial scandal or a sexual scandal or gets caught up in addiction. It just breaks my heart because I know what's going to happen. People are going to say, uh-huh, that's why I'm not doing any of that Christian stuff. They are nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. And they're judgmental, and I can give you six other things, right? They see those things, and they use it as justification that they don't want anything to do with this lifestyle. Well, John the baptizer's words are very abrasive, but I don't think they're corrosive. There's a difference. There's a difference in words that are just meant to be acidic, and to sit on metal, and to destroy things. That's not what John the baptizer is doing. His words are abrasive, kind of like sanding off the rust that's on metal, so that you can get down to what's good metal, and protect and preserve it. It's not meant to destroy. It's meant to buff away those things that don't fit. So when we look at this, I think we can join our voices with John whether insider or outsider, and say, enough already of this hypocrisy. And it would be easy for us to say of their hypocrisy, of all the things they're doing, right? We look around and we want to point out everyone's hypocrisy. That's where I'm at. Folks, that's not the point. And I'm speaking to outsiders and insiders. The point is not somebody else's hypocrisy. 
Hear me clearly. I know you may have had a pastor do something to you. An elder say something to you. A church harm you. And they're going to be legitimate. I'm going to be angry about it. I'm going to be horrified about it as well. Right? Don't want to minimize that at all. But what those people did is not an excuse to keep you from the most important relationship that you will ever have with the God who loves you and made you. And we need to stop allowing people to control us by their hypocrisy, by their inadequacies, and by their shortcomings. No, let's turn and let's focus in on our inconsistencies to not justify their mistakes as a reason for us to be disconnected from God, as an excuse, a justification. All right, well, that takes us further to what happens in this story because John the Baptist gets through. I wouldn't have thought this would have worked. But look in verse 10, what happens after his abrasive, not corrosive words. And the crowds asked him in verse 10, what then should we do? (laughs) How about that? What should we do? Not what should somebody else do. What should we do? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats, share with everyone who has none. And whoever has food must do so likewise. Tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. The soldiers asked him, And and what should we do? And he said to them, Don't extort money from other people by threats or false accusations. Be satisfied with your wages. And as the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts whether John, whether he might be the Messiah, whether he might be Christ. Well, this is great. They get the exact right response. What can I do? What can I change? Yes, that's what we're supposed to be about. Verse 10. How do I think about my life, my influence, and what I can do with my own kingdom. That's the appropriate response. It even echoes a question that gets asked by an angry mob that had killed Jesus in Luke's second book. Yes, he has a part two. If you're really into this Jesus stuff, you can look at Luke and look at Acts. But in part two, when the people realized that that angry mob that grabbed Jesus and executed him When that angry mob that thought, you know what we should do with the people that disagree with us? We should kill them. That's what we should do. That angry mob, once they figured out that this was Jesus, the Son of God, once they figured out, I mean, Jesus is a human. We don't do this to any humans. But once they figured out after the fact this was Jesus, they said, what do we do? We've killed the Son of God. So here it's echoed in this passage right here. What do we do? And John lines it out. If you're a tax collector, don't take more than you're supposed to. If you're a soldier, don't use your spear to get more bribes. If you've got an extra coat, don't let it sit in the closet. Give it to someone. It's cold outside. Share. If you've got food, share. These are practical things. You don't have to be a Christian to believe these obvious things about what it means to be a human, right? John's saying, let your life match up with what you're saying. 
If you're going to turn to God, then act like it. Look like it. Now the word that he uses, the phrase, might be kind of more of an insider phrase. Produce fruit in accordance with your turning. Let your life show that you've turned to God. The principle is that change needs to take hold of us. You say you're a Mac person? Well, then why are you still using a PC? You say you're a Google person? Well, then why do you keep using that Bing toolbar? We all know that's worthless. That thing doesn't work. You you say that you want to lose weight. Well, why are we still eating junk? Right? You say that you want to be faithful to your wife, then why are you still sneaking around with her? You get it? Our life has to match up with what our words are saying. The principle is pretty basic. We want to avoid using our position as a way for personal gain at the expense of others. Let me say that again. We want to avoid using our position as an, a means for personal gain at the expense of others. Now, if you look at that, that's what John the Baptist is saying to tax collectors, to those of us that have two coats, to those of us that have enough food. Don't let your position as a soldier or a tax collector allow you to take advantage of other people. So we have to look at ourselves. Am I doing my job? Am I doing what my boss hired me to do? Putting in the hours, accomplishing what needs to be done. In my business practices, am I just pursuing the cheap costs at all expense, speaking about illegal immigration, but hiring and mistreating workers? How is my life a means to exploit others and hurt other people? I want you to think about the cheap tile that we put on our floors and wonder who made that tile? Who made that so cost efficient for us to buy? Who are the people that are under our feet that we're walking on that we don't ever notice? Whether you're an insider or an outsider, this is a tough word. It's not a uniquely Christian word, but it does speak volumes about what it means to be a Christian and to be a human. And if I could, I want to just summarize where we've come so far today. Number one, I hope you have seen that outsiders are very valuable in God's plan. In fact, Scripture is loaded with outsiders. It's sometimes uncomfortable how many outsiders are there, even one like Luke that writes a whole book and gives us a perspective of Jesus that we wouldn't have otherwise. Outsiders are valuable to the plan of God. And they help us to show how to react to Jesus, to prepare us for Jesus. Okay, a second thing. Insiders don't get special treatment. They don't get special preference. John the Baptist was clear on this. You say you're a God's person? Good. We could find you know, a dime a dozen people that will claim God or claim Jesus. That's great. God can make them out of stones. What counts is what your life looks like. That's what counts. Ouch. <laughs> Doesn't it cut? It hurts. 
But thank you, John, for giving us this message that insiders don't get preferential treatment. We're all on the same page. And then third, for insiders and for outsiders, is our life consistent? Is what we say and what we do in alignment? Does our performance in this life reveal what our priorities are? Now, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not talking about having it all together. None of these people do. But on a daily basis, how consistent is our life or how are we sending mixed messages? Well, this is going to be hard stuff, isn't it? Jesus for outsiders? I don't know if I want to do this. Let's go back to something a little more comfortable. (laughs) We're going to keep with this for a number of weeks, trying to explore how Jesus interacted with outsiders and how we might hear the gospel, the good news, the story about Jesus with outsider ears. Let's give thanks to God. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your work in our lives. And so we ask you and we beg you to do a new thing in us. Not just convict us, but empower us and enable us to live this life that you've called us to. Father, we ask your forgiveness for the ways that we are inconsistent, for the mixed messages that we do send. Father, we pray that you will cover us and that you will convict us to change and that each day you'll help us take just one more step to make a little bit more progress in looking more like your son and being the people that you made us to be. We ask you to receive our worship through Jesus. Amen.